Well, New City, I'm uh, eager to open God's Word with you this morning, um, with Reggie, with my brother. You know, this is a this is a conversation that we've been having for some time since we actually launched the church, and uh, are nevertheless picking it back up again. But there is a receptivity that I'm sensing to the issue of God healing our racial division, not only in the world, but specifically in the church. And because of that, we can be mournful during this season, and we can be glad because it's the day that the Lord has made, and we can rejoice in it. Because here's what our theology tells us, church. Our theology tells us this, that the kingdom of God has come, that, that Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God, at his resurrection, he ushered it in. And he said, you know, blessed are those who mourn. You know, and, and, and that, that that mourning is, is in essence an agreement that the kingdom has come. And, and, and not only has the kingdom come, we believe the kingdom is coming as well. And so when, when, we, when we have a theology that informs us to pray, our Father in heaven, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done as on earth as it is in heaven. We have to believe that his kingdom is even coming through situations like these, through seasons like these. Church, I don't think the world is getting worse. The world is just becoming aware. Racism is not getting worse in the United States of America. It's just getting filmed, Okay. The mourning and lament for us are all indicators for us that we feel incomplete, that we feel like something is missing, that there is a gaping hole in our purpose as image bearers of God collectively. And we're tempted to breeze past the mourning, to breeze past the lament, and help it to go away as quick as we can. But I think... As C.S. Lewis once said, the, the longing, the mourning, the lament, it's just a reminder that we were made for another world. So we don't just sit back and say, God, bring that, take us to that other world, take us to heaven. We say, God, bring your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven today. And do that through your church. Abram is who we're going to be looking at today, his call from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. But there's a the writer of Hebrews paints this picture of Abram from a big picture standpoint. He shows that he zooms out and shows the 50,000 foot view of what Abram was dealing with. And, and he, Abram knew this from what we read in Hebrews. God's plan to save the world was this, to allow us to feel the weight of sin, to feel the helpless nature of mankind, and to feel, and feel desire with a life empowered by faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 10 says this. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of that same promise. And this is the key verse for us right here. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. 
church. That's what we're looking for. We're looking forward to the city who has foundations and whose designer and builder is God, not man. And we believe that God is bringing that city to bear in our cities as we approach this subject today. Abraham was willing to wander to wander the world as a homeless man if it meant that he could have God's promises. He was willing to live in voluntary exile than to live in the privileges of his own cultural context. He abandoned them all for the promise of what God had for him. Here's our big idea today. It's this. Christians are the only people that not only have the desire for unity, I'm sensing that deeper than ever now, that have the desire for unity, but actually the power to make it happen, okay? Everyone that I know desires unity now. It doesn't matter what your cultural context is. doesn't matter the color of your skin. Everyone that I'm meeting desires this unity. Even people that have been entrenched with, with racist cultural kind of underpinnings that, that are now becoming more aware of. They desire unity, but only the church has the power to make it happen because only the church has the spirit alive in us. This is our cultural moment, church. Right now, Maybe for the first time, most Americans see racism. They, they know that it still exists, and they're standing up against it. The desire is good, but without the power of the Spirit, unity will never actually happen. So the church has to take the lead on this one. Reg is going to be up here in just a second. He's invited me to preach this sermon with him. This is his sermon. And he invited me to preach the first point, in which I was honored uh, to do. The outline is this as we look at Genesis chapter 12. It's leave, leverage, and love. Leave, leverage, and love. So I'm going to preach leave. Reg is going to preach leverage and love, and then we'll close it out. Leave. A reconciling church chooses to surrender the comfort of our own cultural home. All right? Let's read Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 together. Actually, I'll read all three verses. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Abram, his name hadn't changed yet. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here's what you got to know about Abram. Abram wasn't a child of the covenant. Abram was a pagan from the land of Ur whose family and tradition and cultural background worshiped the stars and the moon. That was their God. We know this from Joshua chapter 24. Uh, Here's what Joshua 24 says just about Abram's cultural context that he came from, that that he had to leave. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, that's our guy, and of Naor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. So what we see is that Abram was called to leave. He was called to cut the the, the safety net off of his cultural underpinnings 
He was called to leave all of that behind and to build his life completely on the faith that God had given to him. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's Genesis chapter 15. It's like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. That faith that Abraham had, it came from God. And, and when you walk a life of faith, you leave, when you grab a hold of that, you have to leave other things behind. That's what I'm talking about here. For Abram to stay in Ur would have halted the work of God in Abram's life. Could God have saved him in Ur and called him to transform Ur with the gospel? Sure. But he called him to leave it to pursue the promise for every generation to come. Obeying God's calling on our life, church, it requires faith. Absolutely requires it. So we need to ask ourselves this question this morning. What would it look like to walk by faith and not by sight as we navigate racism, prejudice, and a broken and divided image of God in this world today? What does, what does leaving look like for you? I'm going to jump straight into application. We're going to be application heavy today because we need it. What does that look like for you and for me today? What's it look like to decide to stay in error instead of stepping into the life of faith, moving forward to the promise land founded on a life of faith. God gives Abram an imperative, and it's this. You've got to leave. Get you out is the way it reads in the Hebrew. You've got to leave, Abram. That's the only way that this thing can go forward. And so I see two ways that he calls Abram to leave. First thing he says is this. You've got to leave your country. You've got to leave your culture. You've got to leave your country. So Abram, you can't stay in the land of Ur and receive the promise. You cannot have Ur in the kingdom of God. You have to leave your culture, and your life has to entirely be built on faith. Now, here's the deal. We all have our own cultural errs, right? It's a funny word to say. It's a funny name. We all have our own cultural place of comfort. And, and what, what Abram was called to do was to surrender that for the sake of future generations and the unity of God's people, and the advancement of God's kingdom through his people. He was called to surrender that place of comfort. And it's the, it's, it's the place and lifestyle that we can enjoy without total dependence on the Spirit. You know what I'm talking about. It's the place that you can live in without trusting God's Spirit to make anything happen in your life. We all have those places. It's where Jesus can be an ancillary fixture to the kingdom of me. That's the danger. And, and we, we've all convinced ourselves that this is normative for the Christian life in America. I'll do me with the little Jesus and we'll enjoy life. That's what we've convinced ourselves as corporately as the church in America. But God tells Abram, you've got to leave it all behind. Not only has God told Abram that, Jesus tells his disciples the same basically exact thing. Let's look at Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62 together. As they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you, you'll go. I'll follow you wherever you'll go, Jesus. Jesus, I'll leave Ur in a heartbeat if I can be with you. But just tell me where you're going so that I can keep the GPS up in case things get a little sideways on the way there. And Jesus, what's he say to him? Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, you're not following me to a destination. You're following a person. In church, when we follow a person, 
even though we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, we have no fear because he's with us. This is what Jesus was trying to tell those disciples. You don't have to keep your GPS up. You've got to keep your heart fixated on the person and the work of Jesus. So follower of Jesus have a home in Jesus, and anywhere Jesus is is our home. That's what he's saying to his disciples. He goes on. There's another guy that comes up, and he says this. Jesus says to him, follow me. But the man says this, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, okay, was Jesus saying, hey, you can't go to your dad's funeral? No, here's what was likely happening. This guy wanted to go back. His father may have been elderly, right? He wanted to wait for a season with his father because his father would die, and this guy probably had something coming to him, right? An inheritance coming to him. Jesus, I'll follow you, but first let me make sure my pockets are filled in case things get a little sideways and I decide to depart from following you. I want a safety net of my wealth is what this man was saying. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Go out now, he says. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Church, here is the temptation for us right now is that we put our hand to the plow right now and we see all of this momentum for the unity of the church for the sake of Jesus and a demonstration of who Jesus is to the world. And yet, when it gets a little uncomfortable, we start looking back and we start remembering what Ur was like and how comfortable it was. He says, no one who does that's fit for the kingdom of God because we must press forward for what God has for us. Now, each of these instances were a different face of having Jesus and our earthly culture, our comfort zone. And what we're saying, what each of these people were saying is, I I want the kingdom, but I don't want it to cost me anything. I want the appearance of kingdom without the cost of the kingdom. Jesus is telling his disciples that if we, that we cannot advance his kingdom by holding on to our kingdom. That's what he's saying. You've got to abandon it. That's why he called Abram to leave. So, when, when you're a part of mainstream dominant culture, you don't see why this is such a big deal. Okay, Abram, get your passport ready. You've already got the job. Just move where God tells you to go. It's kind of how we see it. But when you leave your country, something happens. Every familiarity that you find comfort in disappears. And then every situation that you find yourself is, 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 has the opportunity for threats of an enemy coming against you. All of a sudden, all of the culture you find comfort in turns into a potential enemy. And you notice that everything doesn't seem like home. But you know what that does when you find yourself in that place? It sends you to your knees. And when we're sent to our knees, we're actually required to live this life of faith. So the first thing the church must do is to make our cultural comforts a servant to Jesus, okay? Jesus hasn't come to make your life easy. He's come to save us, and that's going to require radical, costly faith for each and every one of us. The second thing he tells him to do is this. Not only leave your country, but leave your family is what he tells him to do. Leave your family's culture and your actual family. Okay, so leaving your home culture would have been tough, but possible if you can move with your family and kind of embed your culture in a new place. But God tells Abram, this isn't how you're supposed to go out from here. You need to go alone. 
Let me just say this, church. The cost for unity in the church has been higher in this country for people of color than for white folks. That's fact, not speculation. God's word calls us to mutual surrender of our own culture, such a surrender that our own stability is the spirit of God, and that's it. When the spirit of God is your only source of power and stability in this world, we find ourselves with this posture. We are humble learners that are more curious than certain of others and are seeking to understand more than we are seeking to be understood. And that's a huge shift. Paul gives a vision for this in Ephesians chapter 2. We've preached on this till we're blue in the face. But he speaks about how our vertical reconciliation with God, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, by grace you've been saved through faith, how that vertical reconciliation is tethered to horizontal reconciliation. Ephesians 2, 14, he has torn down in himself, he's our peace, he's torn down the dividing wall of hostility. But so many times what we do is we sever Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, through the rest of Ephesians 2. What we're, calling, what we're, we're being called to do as a church is just to put those two back together and see that vertical reconciliation always leads to horizontal reconciliation. And what, what comes from that is this transcultural new community, this one new man, as Paul calls it. Many times we empty the power of the Holy Spirit in the church when it comes to unity. We say things like this, there's only one race, the human race. We say things like, I don't see color. How do you think God feels about that? How do you think God feels when we look at his multifaceted image on the face of the earth and say, hey, God, I don't see any differences? Do you think that honors God? Does that lead us to worship of God? I don't don't think so. I, I think that those are nice statements, but those are statements that do not require faith to live out. What requires faith is to be filled with God's spirit to such a degree that you can notice the complex image of God in another brother or sister or culture or color or class. You can notice it all, and then you can still live in deep fellowship. You can still mourn with each other when your color, class, or culture is mourning. That requires faith. That requires the Spirit not being colorblind. And I, and I know many times it comes from a, a place of love. But I just want to speak just real honestly, and then I want Reggie to, to preach to us. Just real talk here. Most, most of you in, at New City Church don't know this. But just in our little church here, it is costly. Let me say it again. It is costly for a person of color to be a part of our body as a church. And the reason is, is because they have left their dominant culture and they've come into another dominant culture. Some of them are ridiculed by their family members for being a part of New City Church. You didn't know that. It's appropriate for me to bring this up, though. Why? Because it can be seen as another way that minorities have sold out to white culture. That's a real conversation that I've had with people in our church. Now, these brothers and sisters have made that costly decision, and they've made this decision that the unity of Jesus' church is worth more to them than the cost. 
But it is costly, and it's costly for you to be a part, or it should be costly for us all to be a part of Jesus' church for the sake of the unity of his body. So what does being a part of the body of Christ at New City Church cost you? What have you had to leave to surrender for the sake of the unity of the body of Christ and the person of Jesus? We've said as a church that being reconciled and reconciling is a church that no one gets their way all the time, all right? Like if we really want to go after this, here's, here's the deal. It costs each and every one of us something. Of course, you don't like all the music or all the sermons or all the trainings, and that's because you are only one sliver of the image of God. But the discomfort is a pathway to a reconciled church. Surrender hurts until you see what it produces. And my, my challenge to you is that we would learn to leave well, and we would rejoice in the leaving, even in the pain of it, as we, if we, as we set aside the comforts of our own culture to produce to see God produce through the Spirit this one new man, this community of faith. And Reggie, I know you've got a, you've got a story yourself about what it's like to leave home, and uh, I want you to share that with us. Thank you, Ryan, and thank you for an opportunity to share. As you can tell, I have a pretty good tan. No tanning beds necessary here. And um, I was saved in a black church I was raised in a black church. I was baptized in a black church. I was licensed first, licensed, and ordained in a black church. Uh, Hopewell Baptist Church was the church I was licensed and ordained in. And uh, my next steps were going to be, this was about 25 years ago. It's hard to believe it's that long. I'm starting to feel, as they were saying, sports long in the tooth. A little bit old here, but I, I, about 25 years ago, Hopewell was the premium black church in Gwinnett County, and everybody wanted to be, you know, Hopewell, right? And so they were looking for, it's like a good football team that has great, a great coach and a great staff, you know, everybody's bidding for their staff, right? So I was primed to go from Hopewell to slide into at least a 500-member church, you know, and do all the pastoral stuff. And all of a sudden, I start having these dreams and these visions and this uncomfortable feeling like I was being pushed out of the boat. And the Lord, told, short of a story, called me, called me from Hopewell to a church called Central Gwinnett Alliance Church. I thought the Alliance was a cult, number one. Number two, there were no pepper, there was no pepper in that at all, all salt, you know what I mean, euphemism for white and black. And the, the lead pastor really didn't care that much for me. It was the, the two churches had joined, but we were clear that God had called us there. And immediately I left from Hopewell because you want to follow the Lord no matter how uncomfortable it is, right? 
And uh, my friends, they, you know, they, they came to give me a good talking to, right? Why are you doing this? You don't think we're good enough. And so, so here I am in the middle. Here I am in the middle. On one side, I'm too black to be white. And the other side, I'm too white to be black. You know, it's just like I was stuck, right? And I've been on this journey for 25 years. Sometimes I have what it feels like uh, as my uh, daughter, when, when I had in the private Christian school that was 95%. Said, why? She said, Daddy, you got to get me out of here. I said, why? She said, I got white fatigue. I'm like, where did you get that from? You know, but I, I felt that. I felt that. But here I am. I'm still here 25 years later, and things have opened up gloriously. And so we have to learn to leave our cultural influences and go where God has called, called us to go. Does that make sense to you? And so that's where we are. My point here is that, number two, is that we have to not only learn to leave, we must learn to leverage. We must learn to leverage. A reconciling church leverages its capital to reach every man, woman, and child. When you look at what God called Abraham to do, he called him to be a conduit for something greater than himself. He said, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. I love those I wills, don't you? And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It was five I wills that basically had three promises that Abraham was to leverage. It was the promise of land. I'll show you the land, he says. The land I will show you. It was a promise. It was a national promise that you will be a great nation. And then there was a spiritual promise. All, he says, all the families in the earth will be blessed by you or in you. And so as we look at the scripture and we look at the life of Jesus and in our own lives, we notice that there are at least five forms of capital that we can leverage for the gospel's sake so that the whole world could be blessed through us. You know, I would like to say, man, I'm just weeping and I'm so sad about these times, but I'm really not. For I see these times as a great opportunity. Right. I see these times as a great opportunity. Now, if you're fighting the ring and it's time, you know, for you to get up and fight in the ring and you've been eating bonbons and and donuts and honey buns and just goofing off and you got Mike Tyson on the other side, you should be afraid. But if you have if you are a Vander Holyfield and you prepare for Mike Tyson, wow, this is a great opportunity for us. When we're looking at everybody's running and everybody's doing all this stuff, this is a great opportunity for us. I'm not sad at all. I I believe God is in the midst of all of this, all of the marching and all of the the Lord is in the midst of it. COVID-19, all of it. This is the greatest shift that's happened in in centuries, and we get to be a part of it. And the church said, amen. Five capitals. Let me just say this before I start preaching. And and, uh, uh, you're going to have to help me with the time up there because you said the thing will tick down, but... You know, right now it says I got 40 minutes, so I mean, I I don't know, but we won't do that. Okay, number one, the capital that we're called to leverage is the financial capital. 
financial capital. That's simply money that you have available to invest in terms of dollars and cents. Either money will be our master or we'll master it. It will be an idol or it will be a tool. And so God gives us financial capital so that we can impact the world for the gospel's sake. And even when we're dealing with situations like reconciliation, you know, um, when I was uh, planting a church in Gainesville, I saw this work in a beautiful way. One family came and he had two daughters and he said, we want to invest in what God is doing here. And my daughters have stock over at some company and uh, we, they want to cash in those stocks and give it to the work here. They were using financial capital to leverage for the kingdom's sake. Does that make sense? Jesus told her, you rich young ruler, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And come follow me and I'll give you true riches. And that the, the rich young ruler was sad because he did not want to leverage his what? Financial capital. He saw it as the greatest in the kingdom economy, yet it was the least in the kingdom economy. So let's use our money to make a difference. If we're going to play a significant part in reaching the 16,770 people groups in the world, you and I must be willing to leverage our financial capital. Number two, uh, the second capital is intellectual capital. And this is the creativity and knowledge that we have available to invest in the kingdom and for the sake of the kingdom. It's concepts and it's ideas. You know, Jesus wasn't just a holy man. He was a very, he had intellectual capital. He was a very smart man. Dallas Willard says Jesus just wasn't nice. He was brilliant. He just didn't pray a lot. He thought a lot. And so intellectual capital for the sake of the kingdom. How many have ever heard of a lady by the name of Harriet Beecher Stowe? Raise your hand. And what's unique about her? Somebody tell me. She was an author. What did she write? Uncle Tom's Cabin. And Uncle Tom's Cabin was profound in its impact. It will probably be in glory before we know the, uh, the, 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 the impact that she made. Uh, it was Lincoln when he met Harriet Beecher Stowe. She, he said, ah, the little woman who wrote the book that started this great war. Interesting, isn't it? Because what she did is she took the things that were happening in the dark and she wrote it in such a way that it could capture the imagination of the, the country and the country wanted to do something about it. And ironically, it wasn't until the North and the South split that the Civil War happened. Now what has happened today? We also have a picture of what has happened in the country, right? The imagination of the, of the people have, across the world has been, the picture has been painted. It's oh, that's still happening? And uproar and it's happened. Now, just like back in the day, we got an opportunity not to split, but to come together and make a difference. Does that make sense to you? So she used her intellectual capital to make a difference. It, it isn't complicated. Uh, do we have that uh, meme 
I, I put this on Facebook here. I got this from somebody. I can't find out who the author is, so I guess I might as well take credit for it. But um, so believe it or not, because I've been talking on Facebook, and, and, and I'm in a better place than I was four years ago, because I couldn't do it four years ago because I was angry. But I can do it now because, you know, you, it's, it's, I'm, I'm a little bit more mature. But many of my right brothers, over 40 years old, uh, they have a single-track mind. It's just something happens, immediately they go to the bottom one down there, and they get to support the police officers. And I would talk, and most of my black people will be talking from the top left, outraged by George Floyd's death. And it's like when you go to um, um, Chick-fil-A or something, or someplace, and, and someone is, uh, they speak another language, right? And uh, you say you're ordered, and, and they can't understand you, and you can't understand them. What do we normally do? Say it louder, right? I would like, like, that's going to change it. That's not going to change it, and that's what happens. The support guys on for the police talk louder, and the support guys for these guys talk louder, and all of a sudden... We just, it's out of control. Nobody's listening, just passing each other. So I said, wouldn't it be grand if you go back to that? Thank you. Uh, that we could have, be outraged by the death, not condone looting and rioting, uh, support good police officers, and be right in a sweet spot in that. Wouldn't that? And, and you know what? Many of my Caucasian brothers fought and over have written back and said, man, this is like a revelation for me, right? And the, this is so helpful. Can, can I share this? And so just that's intellectual capital at work, just a little something to move the needle forward. Amen? A another deal on intellectual capital here is, um, I don't know if you've just seen the great um, Kairos moment, the great Epiphany, the great revelation that the Roger Goodell just had, right? Just out of the blue, Roger Goodell said, man, I want to just come in and make a confession. We, the NFL, got it wrong. We should have listened to you and heard the protest. But as always, you got to say, well, where did that come from? Because I doubt Roger Goodell just woke up one morning feeling like what he felt like his heart burned and it's the Holy Spirit moving so hard on him that he said, I got to do something. No, you know where that came from? Somebody used their intellectual capital to move the needle. It was somebody on his staff that was a writer that was in the media, in the media portion of it, contacted uh, one of the New Orleans Saints football players, said, we've been grieved about three or four years about how the NFL treats black players and their unwillingness to stand against racism. So I want to help you message, put a, uh, get your message together so you can put it out, you and a collective group. And that's what happened. The guy risked his job to do that. And within a week, Roger Goodell had called all the staff in and said, tell me what you're feeling. He listened and with weeping for three or four days, they said, he came to the conclusion, we missed it. But I guarantee he talked to the other 32 owners, too, because at the end of the day for the NFL, it's about financial capital. 
Are you still with me? Oh, my last point is not this long so you guys can breathe easily. But if we're going to be a play a significant part in reaching the 16,770 people groups in this world and make a difference in this whole deal about this reconciliation piece and this healing piece, we're going to have to learn how to leverage our intellectual capital. Right? Third one is physical capital. Physical capital, this, this is the time and energy we have to invest in, in a measured way with hours and minutes. Do so we give physical presence to tasks and projects and relationships? It's like getting out in the street and marching, right? You say, well, I don't believe in protest. Well, you know, peaceful protest is pretty profound. You just ask Dr. Martin Luther King, right? It was brilliant what he did. It was brilliant what he did. You know why it was so brilliant? Because, again, he was able, and what King would do is stand up, Ryan. He would say, okay, now he would bring people in on Saturday, and they would, they would have the, the thing that would hit him, and they said, you know, a thing that was snapping on like dogs were going to be biting on him and punch people punching him. He said, what will your response be? Because you, I don't want you to respond back, respond back in kind. I want you to kill them with kindness, kill them with love. But what happened when they went out and the, the dogs, the police, and the dogs were turned on them, they didn't respond in kind. And the whole world says, what is going on here? And this is how we got civil rights passages passed and that sort of thing. Thank you so much. You, you understand, that was physical capital. Our millennials and our Gen Z guys are out in the street, right? And they're providing the physical capital. I think what needs to happen now is some of us need to come alongside and say, let me help you with some intellectual capital of organization. The, the second one, and I'm putting them in the order of the greatest, least to the greatest, is relational capital. This is relational equity. We have to begin to invest in relationships and reach across the aisle. Let me tell you about a man who's gone and dead now. His name was uh, uh, Grady White. I grew up in Bainbridge, Georgia. Yes, Bainbridge, Georgia. You know of Bainbridge because Kirby Smart is from Bainbridge. Kirby Smart of the University of Georgia Bulldogs, right, is from, from Bainbridge, Georgia. That's why you know the name. The great metropolis, Bainbridge, Georgia. But I grew up in Bainbridge, Georgia. I was raised by my grandfather. My grandfather was born in 1909, right? Bainbridge was very segregated for a long, long, long time. Bainbridge had a pretty rough history, but on the surface, it looked nice. There's this man that was born the same year, the same month, and the same day as my grandfather, that he lived about a quarter mile up the street from us. His name was Grady White. And my grandfather's name was Roosevelt Screen. And so both had a farm. My grandfather had a few hundred acre farm, and Mr. Grady White had a much larger farm. And so my grandfather toiled, and Mr. Grady White toiled, and they would take their farms to the crop, and Mr. Grady White watched that for about 40 plus years. Then one day, Mr. Grady White said, you know what I want to do, Roosevelt? Uh, I don't think it's right what's been happening to y'all all these years. He didn't say, I'm going to use my relational capital. But this is what he was doing. He said, now next time you get ready to take those livestock to the market, the next time you get ready to take the, that corn or whatever to the market, what I want you to do 
is I want you to load that on my, that livestock on my trailer. And my grandfather said, why is that? He said, because I've been getting twice the amount that you've been getting for all these years, and I just can't take it anymore. I'll get the check, cash it, and give you the money. And what that did is that it took him a while to get there because he's been socialized. You understand? Do you understand all of us have been, have been socialized? There's not a person in this place today that has not been socialized by the current dominant system of the day. It's intended that way. That's why I'm not like uh, really angry when a lot of my Caucasian brothers come at it from a way that I don't necessarily come at because we've been socialized to think like we think. And so we got to be willing to reach across the aisle, use our relational capital to make a difference here. Right. You know things that I don't know, and I know things that you don't know. I got two young men sitting right here, here, and they're trying to find their way in life, and they're going to find their way very well. I'm using my relational capital. They live with me at my house. I'm using my relational capital to impact him. He's uh, Hispanic in nature from New York, and he's from uh, Michigan, right? Yes. And so this is relational capital that will have a financial capital impact that help will have an impact in intellectually. But I'm going to change their lives. Why not? Because I'm so great, because you can impress about far, but you can only impact up close. OK, is the church still out there? All right. Now, let me see. Can I hasten to my last close this thing up here? The last one is spiritual capital, and we understand that what, what that is. We have been born again by the new birth in Jesus Christ. It is the highest order. This is why Jesus says, sell what you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me, and you will have true riches. What's the greatest two? The, the guy asked Jesus, what's the greatest two commandments, and what did he say? Love God, spiritual capital, and what? Love your neighbor. Those, these are the two greatest commandments. Could it be why our churches are homogeneous in nature? Could it be why we have such problems is that we are idolatrous in nature? Because anytime you put something above the spiritual capital, it's called idolatry. I'm just saying it's quiet. I can hear the church mouse. In this new place, it's quiet in here. Lastly, if we're going to leverage, if we're going to make a difference, if we're going to, we have to be willing to, uh, to make a difference, a significant difference with the 16,770 people group, uh, we must leverage our spiritual capital. And my third point is love. A reconciling church is God's way of showing love to, a, uh, to the world. He says here in Acts 3, 24 and 25, indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days, and you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all people on earth will be blessed. And then Paul reminds us what he was talking about. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given in Abraham might come 
to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that, there it is again, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And so love is our apologetic, my friend. It is a powerful apologetics. By this, he says in John 13, 35, all people will know you are my disciples by the love you have one for another. Not a new building, even though this building is nice and it's forming up well. Not our, um, a little enclave together, homogeneous enclaves. enclaves. He said they'll know by what? The love you have for another. Abraham left a great legacy, didn't he? That impacted the world. I wonder what type of legacy are you leaving, especially in regards to how you see people who don't look like you? If the walls can talk, what would they say if they replayed what you have been saying about others? Would it be a godly legacy that leads your children to shout from the rooftop that my parents' actions presented Christ to the world? Or would they say, well, my parents are just another little Archie Bunker, right? Just, we don't want that, do we? And so love is a great apologetic. <clears throat> I... um. Had a, uh, um, I, I almost what, didn't make it here uh, today. I almost became a Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> Look at me like, <laughs> where's he going with this? Surely, I almost did. I almost did. I was in um, Columbia, South Carolina, and we were having, I'm, I'm a part of the Christian and Missionary Alliance denomination. It's founder has seen um, Presbyterian roots. That's why that's why Ryan calls me. He thinks I'm enough Presbyterian to fit in here. But but what what had what had happened was as they were sitting in the black community. What had happened was is that we were having our district conference with all of our varied people around, and I was staying in a hotel, a nice hotel, and I met. I saw these people interacting. And the first day, it was quite queer to me, right? It was strange. It's like, that's white, that's black, that's Asian, that's Hispanic. And these people, they look like they really like each other. I would go to bed at night. They would be up talking. I'd get up in the morning and go to breakfast. They would be there talking. They were just, and um, I said, hmm. I thought about that all day because I would go in my group, but we were taking care of the church business. You know what I'm saying? But we didn't hang out together. Right. We were we were in the same denomination trying to give people the Lord. OK, you see what I'm saying? It's like, OK, so so I had enough. So I'll go back and I said, uh, who, who are y'all? Why is it that you're dealing with each other like that? It's oh, we're the Jehovah's Witness and we are we, we have our conference over in uh down this part, and we come back here, and we just hang out together and just love on one another. I said, oh, my goodness. That's what it means by all men, all, by, by the love you have for one another. People will know you to my disciples. I'm not trying to make a judgment, a non-judgment judgment on the Jehovah's Witness. I'm saying how they dealt with each other 
even got a seasoned preacher to look and ask, who are you? Because I would like our group to have some of that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop right there. I imagine I'm about at my time. You're still, 40, you're still 40 minutes, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, still 40 minutes. So, Yeah, I'm yeah. just going to – thank you so much, Reggie. I'm just mm-hmm. going to close this out with just a real practical verse. 2 Chronicles 7.14. Um, I was uh, at a one-race uh, press release at Liberty Plaza with some New City Church leadership and just some partners in the community. And one of the things that was said uh, was this, it's not the criminal justice system or the government's responsibility to bring unity in the world. It's the church. It's the church. Um, So only Jesus can heal what's been broken. And he's going to do that through individuals before he's going to do that corporately through his church because the church is made up of individuals, right? Right? So what's next starts with us. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14 says this. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. I think this is a model for us and how to individually impact, reconciliation, and unity as the church. And corporately, as we come together, we'll see the impact multiply. The first thing he says is humble yourself. You know, the world is broken, and it's broken because of you, and it's broken because of me. We have all loved ourselves more than our neighbor. And if we've had power, we've used it to benefit ourselves, not our neighbor. Every single one of us is born preferring our own race over others. That is how you came out of the womb. Now, to sidestep that is to, I think, give the power to the enemy. Because when Jesus says, love your neighbor as you love yourself, he's, he's not only telling us that we're called to love our neighbor, neighbor but he's, he's telling us um, uh, the degree to which we're to love our neighbor. He assumes we're going to love ourselves, right? He says, you're called to love your neighbor as yourself, Our sin, though, is not the end of the story, that we love ourselves, love our race more than we love others. Some people protest. Some people cobble together news articles and share them. Some people are offended. But when we let the gospel humble us the way Jesus intended for it to, it doesn't matter if someone says we have white privilege. It just doesn't matter. They might be right. We just refuse to quit getting hung up on the responses and inserting ourselves in defense. Because a funeral is not the time to offer your alibi. It's the time to grieve. All of us have privileges. In our country, white people have had more privileges. That's fact, not speculation. No matter how you racially image God, because you're in Christ, you're called to grieve. Weep with those who weep. Mourn with those who mourn. And if we're not able to do that right now, individually, as Christ's church, there's, there's something that's off in us. And I think it's important to acknowledge that, okay? Because the gospel humbles us. That's what Jesus said. That's what Paul wrote about in Philippians 2, that we're to have the mind of Christ to consider others better than ourselves. Secondly, Chronicles says this, not only humble yourself, but pray and seek his face. If you'll do that, if you'll humble yourself so that you can pray and seek his face, 
He says, seek, you know, seek to understand, not be understood. You know, pray and seek his face. We need a biblical response, and that's this. Pray for God to search us and know us so that we will look to Jesus and not ourselves. Refuse to believe that something like protesting is ineffective. It can be powerful. After all, let me just throw this out there. Reggie and I were talking about this this week. We are a Protestant church. You, you get where I'm going? <laughs> Protesting has impact. We have benefited from that. So refuse to look on TV or the news and say, oh, they're just rioting and looting. No, there's, I would say in Atlanta, there's some really effective protesting going on. I'm proud of our city. We had one really rough night, but I'm proud of our city and how they've, how they've stood in solidarity, how we've stood in solidarity together. I think the church's greatest hour, like Reggie said, to shine is now. Even in our own body, I'm seeing a unity in the spirit that I have not seen before. And that's, and it's, and it's, surfaced in repentance. I know we've been in the coronavirus pandemic lockdown, but believe it or not, I've been able to have some great, rich conversations that have revolved around repentance. And repentance is the fruit that we're looking for, right? That's the fruit of change, that God's kindness leads us to repentance when we see sin, see our sin, and we turn to Jesus in faith for him to build his kingdom through us. We, We seek his face and we see our souls are not conformed to the image of Jesus, and it's an opportunity to repent. Repentance is vertical to God and horizontal with, with men. And just in the last two weeks, here's a couple of vignettes of what I've seen. In my staff meeting this week with our church staff, one person made a comment that was well-meaning, but it was a little insensitive. And Patrick, who is Korean, and I asked him if I could share this, and his wife Erica, were, they did the boldest thing imaginable. They were honest. They were honest enough. They loved us and the unity of our team enough to share how they experienced those words. How many relationships do you have like that? That are strong enough in the gospel, strong enough in grace where you can be honest with one another. Because that type of, that, that honesty which led to repentance in our team in a collective time of grieving and prayer and awareness was one of the most beautiful moments we've ever had as a team together in five and a half years. It's those types of conversations, as painful as they may be, as much as they may cost you, that cultivate the culture of change in a community. It's an elder prayer call I was on with mostly middle-aged white men. Even Brandon, he still thinks he's a young man. He's middle-aged. It's Wednesday morning. We're praying, we're thinking about Sunday together. And one man on the prayer call, one of our elders, just starts weeping as he's been talking to his kids about this. And as they would say, he's, he's woke now, right? I mean, he's, he's starting to see it. He's starting to respond to it, and it's changing him. Changed us all. Repentance is like turning the light on in a dark room because the enemy's tactics are diffused in the light. What we are going after as a church is an uphill climb. It is for any church. It has been for 2,000 years. Just read the book of Ephesians and Galatians and Acts 15. It's an uphill climb. But in the Spirit's power, it is incredibly possible, New City Church, for us to see the kingdom of light advanced through us. And that will... That will show itself in the way that we live as the family of God. 
And as we repent, what do we see? The promises that we'll receive forgiveness. Because there are only two types of people in the world. There's lots of different image bearers. Only two types of people, two statuses. That's forgiven and unforgiven. For those that are forgiven, which are those that are humble themselves and repent, there's great power in how we live our lives and how the kingdom is advanced because the enemy no longer holds it over us. There's great power in being forgiven. And as we receive forgiveness, what 2 Chronicles 7, 14 says is this, is that we begin to walk in the healing, the healing of the Lord. So when God tears down the dividing walls of hostility, as we repent in him together, we can't say, look at what we did like they did at the Tower of Babel. You know, that, that's, the Tower of Babel is what unity looks like without the Spirit. The upper room is what unity looks like in the Spirit. That's what God wants for us. Not so that we can make a great name for ourselves, but so that King Jesus can be magnified and exalted through how we live as the family of God together. Church, let's pray together and we'll continue to worship. Father, thank you. Thank you for your church. Thank you for the call to pastor your church. To lead your church, Lord, in the power of your spirit. God, I pray that you would shake our hearts, Lord, that you would move us, Lord. That you would show us, Lord, just real tangibly where you've called us to leave behind the old man and to walk in the power of the new man. Lord, would you empower us to do that? Would you show us what we have to offer the kingdom of God and its advancement, just in how you've imaged us, just how you've made us to image you? And Lord, would you teach us to to love, like Reggie talked about? Lord, I pray that you would give us a costly love for you and for one another, because that will change the world, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.